Wills, can you believe it? It's episode three. Episode three, a design of. And I'm so excited. Do you know why I'm excited today? Well, I think it has something to do with who we got to interview, right? Oh, it totally does. One of my favorites. All right, well, let's not waste a whole lot of time getting into it, but we do want to make our listeners aware that um, this being a podcast about process, it's also the case that being a podcast about process, there is a process involved in creating a podcast. <laughs> Hold on a second. I think there's a lot of process in there. Oh, yeah, there certainly is. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is this is our first remote podcast, and as you'll hear, we had to move the microphone a lot, and um, so be patient with us, but we're excited about what you're about to hear. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Is this the race for gold for the man who finished in second place last year and lost the event by 11 seconds? He's going to beat 17.56. He's going to set himself up for the win in this race as Christian van der Bell comes up towards the line. I think Christian's one of those riders that fans around the world really got behind last year and were really willing him to, uh, to do a good ride and, and will be the same this year. These are the roads that I trained on for four years when I lived at the training center and I've never gone that fast from Woodland Park back here, that's for sure. But uh, no, I just it was a it was a nice day, and I'm having a good time, man. This this race rocks. Now he is the winner of the Tour of Missouri. Welcome, Christian Madibo. Our guest today is someone who I greatly admire, and it's going to be hilarious because uh, Christian Vandeveld, who is about to introduce himself is uh, one of those unique really humble guys and um, I'm sure as I say how much I appreciate him and his career he's just gonna give me like funny faces kind of like he is now so hey Christian welcome to design of thank you very much guys so Justin you're the cycling nerd of the two of us so true can you tell us a little bit about who Christian Vandervelde is yeah Christian Vandervelde is one of our great American cyclists his dad was an Olympian Christian himself was an Olympian and he's ridden in such great races like the Tour de France, the granddaddy of them all. He has cycled with the likes of Lance Armstrong on several of his world championship and Tour de France teams, George Hincapi, Levi Leipheimer, and other well-known cyclists. My dad said I rode when I was three, and then he had a little bike for me, and then I broke that bike, the chain broke or something like that, and he never got it fixed, so then I almost forgot how to ride a bike. Then I had some kind of weird training wheel bike, and then I remember my first official bike though and that was from Oscar Watson Bicycles downtown Chicago. His father used to make my dad's old race bikes so he was one of the first Paramount builders in Schwinn um, so he's one of the true you know frame builders uh, in the United States. So I'm, this is my fifth birthday so May 22nd 1981 so I'm a Schwinn Pixie and it was a girl Schwinn Pixie. <laughs> Weighed like 40 pounds blue chrome fenders and I remember he pushed me and I rode through the bike shop right onto whatever busy downtown street that was or whatever. But uh, but that was my first that was my first bike. And, uh, and then I went to Schwinn Thrasher. And then I used to try to ride the biggest. It was like kind of like a rite of passage, like the biggest bike you could ride. So if you could ride you know, the neighbor's 10-speed or 12-speed, then you're, you're the man, you know. And so I have, I have all the scars to prove it, that I was riding big bikes. And, uh, you know, it was my mom's bike. And then I started to steal my dad's bike, you know, and then, try to wear his old, you know, leather cycling shoes and you know, what just random stuff, you know, it was whatever I could get my hands on. I got my first bikes, you know, then my dad gave me like a Ram Nishiki. And then, then I put together, uh, you know, I forgot, probably like 
some money from graduation and odd jobs and I, I said okay I'll my dad said I'll pay half whatever you go and so I bought a Trek 1200 and we like kind of modified that to a better racing bike and then I started racing um, and then that's when I first got out so I was that was 16 now so this is 92 I did nationals and I got top 10 in nationals and the next year I kind of flailed oh god you don't go from zero to top 10 in nationals so like what happened in between there like how did you train did you did your dad train you did you race your dad yeah. like how did I'm, that I'm sorry I'm, I'm skipping real no. quick Wow, you aren't kidding, Christian is a crazy humble guy. And it's even crazier considering how much he's accomplished in his career. I know, and we haven't even started talking about his dad and how amazing he is. So my dad is a, a 68 and 72 Olympian. So he's a track rider. I did the team pursuit, individual pursuit. Track rider is the, the velodrome. So it's locally in Chicago, we have a velodrome in Northbrook and one in Kenosha. Okay, Wills, here's your chance. What's a velodrome? It's basically an oval-shaped racetrack, usually with bank sides, that people ride fixed-gear bicycles on. Nice job. A lot of people back then in the Midwest, it was a big deal for people to ice skate in the wintertime and race their track bikes in the summertime. Um, even back to when my, my grandparents, my, my grandpa and my uncle, uh, Valera, they, they raced their bikes on the track, and there used to be a bunch of velodromes here in Chicago. And they actually, Chicago Stadium, there was the first event was a six-day bicycle race. So, so it was it was a big deal, and those guys that made more money than Babe Ruth, you know. So, things have definitely changed. I wish it was back back then. <laughs> um, most no notoriety though came from you know being one of the Italians and breaking away. Enrico Giamonte spends eight hours a day training to be the finest racer in all of Italy. But Enrico has a problem. He's not in Italy. He's in Bloomington, Indiana. Papa! Ciao, Papa! And he's not Enrico Giamonte. I should have hit him when I had the chance. He'd be dead now. Oh, grazie, Santa Santa Maria. He's Dave Stoller. He was as normal as pumpkin pie. And now look at him. So when he says breaking away, of course, he means the 1979 film about adolescence and cycling and <laughs> it is about adolescence and cycling well said wills but it is an oscar award-winning film from the 1979 who had a great young cast of like daniel stern and dennis quaid and dennis christopher and uh what's interesting is christian's dad plays one of the evil pro riders and so does some of his buddies who are supposed to be these italian pro riders but yet None of them are Italian. And uh, what a cool thing for your dad to be in this cult classic film about cycling. Before that, though, he was one of the first guys who tried his hand being a professional in Europe and racing the six days over there. So, As an American. As an American. Yeah, so that was a big deal. I mean, back then, no one really did that. And no one was, you know, there really wasn't much infrastructure to start doing that. So he was one of the first guys to start, you know, breaking down some barriers. And then the guys in the 80s took it one step farther and then, everyone so and so forth keeps keeps on going farther and farther well you know what's pretty amazing about this point i just want to really make sure we highlight it what's that christian's dad was an american cyclist who was trying to put american cycling on the map and that is pretty fantastic yeah he's one of the first guys who actually tried to go overseas and start to make a career out of riding his bike considering your pedigree how was cycling treated in your household was it an expectation that you would be a professional cyclist or was it 
more loose than that? What was that like? That's a good question. I, I you know, I, I never really thought of it just because I thought that that was like my natural path. You know, it's like what I always wanted to be. And I always looked up to those guys, looked up to my dad. And my dad was my, my first hero, just like a bunch of other kids all over. And um, then all these guys coming over, professional cyclists, like racing for Schwinn Wheaties in the 80s or Motorola later on and coming over and they're like just ripped tan young men coming over and you're like holy sh so imagine this you're a 12 year old kid and you have all these professional cyclists coming over for meals and sleeping over your house and they're all riding together on the weekends I mean how could you not be excited about being a cyclist so that that always like had that lure the chrome and the bikes you know the cool like and then the 80s, you know, with all the neon bole and Oakley stuff. So, you know, like, I don't know, there's, there's something about it. And it was just different, like, in being in Chicago, the Chicago sports scene was always ball sports. And I really had no desire. Did your dad ever ride any Grand Tours? No, he was he was just a track rider. And I just, not just a track, but just, you know, that's what he did. Um, and, and back then it was, it was quite specialized. So if you did that, you did that. And if not, so no, he never had, you know, I don't, I don't think it even even entered his mind to even do that. Uh, whereas today you'd be given a lot of different opportunities. There's all different kinds of paths and avenues to make it. And it's just like, um, just like any big, bigger sport. So if, if you're a great track athlete, maybe you could be a wild ride receiver for the Vikings one day because you know track and field doesn't always pay the bills and it's, it's our discipline. It's only every four years for Olympics. So you could go so far in track and the, the velodrome that is and then really what's the next step you need to try to make the road if you really want to make a living and have you know a career in 10 years and not live at the olympic training center and things like that so that's just the normal trajectories eventually go to the road so we want to give you a little bit of an image of what it's like to be a 16 year old kid trying to be the best cyclist he can be like i went to two of these one week long motorola cycling camps and that was like uh that was up right up here at St. John's Military Academy outside of Waukesha. And so you're in the dorms, you know, and it's all just people who go out there who want to ride their bikes. And usually it's hosted by, it was by Tom Schuler and by more or less the guys who didn't do the Tour de France. So that was, that was my opening to, well, I really want to do this. And it's a little bit easier to, for me than the other people, I realized. But I just love the in, ins and outs and just eating, sleeping, and riding bikes all day long. So. That's where really I kind of like started to see. That's I was 15 and 6, that's 91, 92. And then right on the heels of that, I went to the national championships. Um, so that was like my second road race ever, you know. But it was it was a it was a blast. I remember I wonder I went there with a 53-12, and there, then we realized that there's junior gears. We're like, oh my god, we you know my, my dad had no clue. We didn't had any thought of anything when we got there. You know, you'd think he'd be prepared. We were completely unprepared. Uh, no, I had no. I had to like switch gears. My 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 friends were like, brought my bike into the pit and just changed all the gears out so I could make roll out. You know, and took, it's a great experience. But next year, definitely sophomore jinx. Just everything just kind of didn't go my way, and I don't I don't know if I wasn't that focused or what. And then so it was my senior year in high school. I took it very serious. I got a, a coach, uh, Clement Capliar, was a local coach here in Chicago, and we had a great crew of guys all here in Chicago, and we all trained together every Sunday and Saturday and Sunday and tried to get together. Whether we were up in Palatine or here or down, down south, we always got together. And that core group, we just pushed ourselves so much farther. From there, I won, I won a, a national title, 
uh, senior national title as a junior the next year on the track. Um, my teammate won the national championship in the, in the points race. Just a bunch of idiot kids from the Midwest. So we just, but you know, it just shows you how when you're pushing yourselves and by yourself, you don't, you'd never do it. But you know, I want to, I want to crush you, and you want to crush me. So we're just going to keep on pushing ourselves farther and farther. And and I was so focused on doing everything. I remember you said carry a gallon of Gatorade with me in school just to say hi. I mean, I was just completely insane. So you have this dad who's, you know, one of America's first great cyclists. And was there any sort of shadow cast on that? Or did you, you know, you talk about being competitive. Did you want to beat him? Did you ever go on a ride and, and crush your dad? Or when did, you know, how did that relate? Yeah. First of all, he never pushed me into cycling. That, that's for sure. Like, if anything, it was me always, you know, begging him. You know, my my birthday parties were at bike races. You know, like we'd take a bunch of kids down to Chicago and watch you know, the Wheatlands Classic or whatever. You know, or Oak Park, things like that. So that that was my mentality. But later on, as far as going with just with with him on bike rides, yeah, of course we'd just try to kill each other the whole time. That that's what he taught me. It was just like we're just we're gonna go out, and we're gonna we're gonna smash it. <laughs> you know, and, and as a kid, that's all you want to do anyway. So yeah, I, was, yeah. I was probably pinned at 210 heart rate the whole time, you know, and just and loving it, you know. And again, like you said, there's no hills around here, right? So it's hard to make a difference. So the one thing would be, we always did the same same ride out the pallet, at the playing fields, 40 miles, like on the dot from my door to on these frontage roads, turn around, come back, you know, 40 miles round trip. And then you had to go across the Lamont Bridge to come back, which I think now that's insane to be riding with your kids at Rutgers because yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's such a bad road. <laughs> but, uh, well, your dad wanted to toughen you up. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that would, that's all we had though. And to come back and and I dropped him over the bridge and that was like the first, like, Wait, for, I think I was 15. That's the first time you dropped him? Yeah, I think I was 15, yeah. And that was... And there's no way he let you... And, and as a father now, that had to be just as a proud and sad moment all at the same time, you know, like, and then even add insult to injury, like a couple of years later, my sister did the same thing on the same bridge. Oh. <laughs> but, do, you, do you guys ever bring that up to him? Of course. Yeah. So right out of high school, did you quote unquote turn pro? Like how does the cycling... Oh yeah. So how does that work? I was all enrolled to college um, at Marion University. So they, cause I was going to get a, a nice scholarship to go there. They give scholarships to, to cycling uh, for cycling riders. And they right across the street from the Belgium where I won the national championships. But then winning that national title made me an automatic qualifier for the Pan Am Games the next year, which I had no clue. All I was trying to do was make the Junior Worlds team. You know, and all I had to beat was, I think, one other junior in the field, and I made it. And so it just, by happenstance, I won the whole thing. And um, so then they said, you want to go to Australia this fall? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, forget college. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I went to live at the Olympic Training Center that October in Colorado Springs and then went over to Australia in Adelaide and just started, you know, just went in the deep end, like big time. Are you still track riding at this Yeah, we're a, we're a track a track rider. And so back then, was this was starting the build up for 96. So this is end of 94 now. And so they're looking, you know, at 96 and the team pursuit program had just gotten a, a silver medal, which was never happened at the world championships. And um, so we had adopted the East German training program. So we were riding what those guys had done. What that? Yeah, yeah. right? It was the East German, it was. And so we was just pretty much, it was pretty much throw eggs at the wall and whichever ones didn't break, then you have your team kind of thing. And so we did, I'm pretty sure like around a little over a thousand kilometers a week. 
that's 650 miles, like a week. What? So what's a typical day like? Just so there, we, we just you know we'd start do uh, you know breakfast in the morning, probably like seven o'clock in the morning. I mean, then I was 18 years old. It's like whatever like whatever sweet cereal came my way, or you know, as I there was no diet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like I, mean, I I had no idea what it was. Anyways, all Australian, just pretty much just eat to eat. You know, eggs, whatever you could get. And then we'd ride four or five hours up in the mountains, and then sometimes up to eight hours. We, we had these training blocks of two, 180 to 180 kilometers, 200 and 240. So that's, it's completely insane. Like I've never done that ever after, after that, those couple of years. And then we'd have that, and so if it was an easier day would be four hours, be 70 some miles on the bike, come back, have lunch, then go to the track and do five times 10 kilometer, you know, intervals on the okay, so VO2. The on the road and then you'd come back and do the track yeah and then and then come home from the track eat dinner and then go to the weight room i mean it was just really it was crazy but i didn't know any better and i was i was happy as larry just to just to be there yeah 10 is just pass out yeah then luckily i broke my collarbone after three weeks and i got to go home <laughs> and that was the best break ever you know because i would i don't know if i would ever i think i would have killed myself you know just training that hard that young but that set me up for the next two or three, three years with those good, 95, 96, 97. And when I actually recovered from all that, then I couldn't do any wrong. So for those two years, I didn't make the Olympic team. I was alternate for the Olympic team. And then... Oh, was that a bummer? Oh, that was huge. You know, as I was ready to quit the sport, you know, because... How close were you? I was second alternate, so, I mean, right there. I was, you know, I was almost had to go down to the Olympics, which thankfully I didn't have to go there and see all my friends race the race that I wanted to be in. I thought I was just 20, but at that time, that was the world, and especially being in Atlanta and all the hoopla around it. I was really depressed, got fat, and then I did the road world championships. So got fat, you mean you gained seven pounds? Yeah, I was, yeah. For, for the, yeah actually, I was pretty big. But, uh, and then but after that, you know, I finally recovered. And then, yeah, the next year, they won three national titles. They won the World Cup on the track. I think even did the road world championships and was top 10 in there, and, and then got a uh, contract with U.S. Boston 98. And we have a breakaway group on our picture, and Maggie just uh, brings up speed with who we've got ahead. we got uh, Nicholas Roach from AG2, we've got Christian Vanderville. The sport's completely changed since then, but then, it, you know, now it's uh, disciplines that I did was a four kilometers, so that's two and a half miles, pursued all by yourself. Uh, team pursuit with four guys and in a points race that is 40 kilometers which is 25 miles so yes it's much more explosive um, it's faster whereas a road race could take five hours or more um, this is more of explosive endurance so I was a bigger guy then you had to do a lot more weight room you know deadlifting and a lot of weights and just, just be bigger just because of the explosive you need to be to go off the the line in the track um, whereas you know going up a 10 mile mountain pass you have to be as small as you possibly can so you see guys Bradley Wiggins is a great example who was a you know a Olympic champion on the track and then won the Tour de France lost I think 15 pounds in the in the interim which whereas whereas you see him on the track he still looked like a skinny guy yeah, yeah. and then he was very very skinny to do good in the Tour de France so yes it is a different sport but now it's even more so where it's so so specialized right. and it's so hard to jump back and forth So your first pro team was the U.S. Postal team. So, like, how does that work? Like, I don't know. How many people are on your team, and then how are you picked to 
go to to what event or how does that work? Just luck of the drum. It was like the U.S. Postal 1998 was not you know Discovery Channel 2005. We had 15 guys on the team. One guy barely raced. Lance was coming back from cancer and pretty much quit halfway through the year. So we had like 13 guys on the team, and we were doing all sorts of races and still a wildcard team for the Tour de France. So if you were alive, you raced more or less. And so like. And so I raced, I think, 107 days or 110, I don't know, something, way over 100 days, though. My first thing was 21, 22 years old, so I did all the World Cups. I did, you know, Paris-Roubaix, Tour of Flanders, you know, GP Swiss, and then I did the, a Grand Tour. I did the Vuelta World Championships, Paris, I mean, you name it, I, I re-raced it. So that, I would never have that opportunity. Tour de France that year? No, thank God. I mean, there's no way I would have been ready to do the Tour de France. Um, but the next year I did, which was still I was still only 23, and on the front um, when Lance won in the first year in '99. So, but yeah, it was we we're definitely not a great team by any stretch of the imagination. So, so your first year, you rode everything. Your second year, you rode the tour, and that's that's the year Lance won. Like I was talking to Will's, and a lot of our listeners may not know there's there's roles you play on a team. So. Can you describe those roles and how you get assigned those roles? You know, like a domestique, like what do they do? And is it true that they're hazed a lot in the for the team? How does that work? Well, yeah, so I was I was definitely in a domestique role. I was just on the front there to get fetch water bottles, food, and then there we defended the yellow jersey. So on the front for hundreds of kilometers at a time, you know, 60 some 70 miles on at the time, and then pretty much finishing. So I was either first or last. You know, so it's either you, those are the guys who are on the front breaking the wind, setting the tempo. Or you know when you do, when your job's done, you sit up and just save all your energy for tomorrow because you're gonna need it. So it's it's a very sacrificial role. You don't have to do, you don't have the pressure that to to win at the end of the day, but you have a lot of work to do, and it's um, and without all the accolades kind of thing. But at the same time, you know you're not tossing and turning. It's, you know at night you just whatever. You know it's not my fault. I did my job. If it, but it it, it okay when. The chips are down, and you have to defend it. That is hard, and that, that is stressful. But for the most part, you, you're not the one who has to truly follow through at the end. Okay, so for those of our listeners who don't understand, cycling, uh, especially at a Grand Tour, is a team sport. Would, would that be, yeah. So uh, what you're saying is you would have to do whatever you can to make sure whoever your guy is, that you're making sure that you're blocking the wind for him, um, and like you said, the domestic goes back to the team car and gets whatever he wants. Like what? I mean, yeah, water bottles, food, rain jackets. And back back then, helmets. Like we didn't have, we didn't have to wear helmets, so sometimes you might have a helmet, or you want to take your helmet off halfway through the race because it's going up a hill because it's hot. Yeah, you know, just obviously things that you wouldn't even think twice of now. But I mean, or or uh, what I think is funny is that we'd always wear the helmets on the flat days, you know, because we were going fast. But then we wouldn't wear them on the mountain stages because we'd get hot, right? But, when you go down. Exactly, right? So like I remember sitting my top to doing like 63, 64 miles an hour down the tourmalade, you know, no helmet, just a cap on. And now like there's no, I don't go out my door without a helmet on, you know. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the camaraderie or the inner workings of a pro cycling team. Are you guys close or is it super competitive and not a whole lot of friendliness going on? What's that like? I think the, the teams for sure are, are the, the camaraderie is really good for the most part because cycling is such a humbling sport and you have to live with each other day in and day out, whether it's you know breakfast table, 
on the way to the race. And it, back then was a, a small car, or now it's on the bus, uh, racing together afterwards. And you, you room together. Uh, you never have your own room. Um, and then, of course, dinner. I mean, it, you're constantly with each other. So if you're not, it's a, it's a necessary evil. You have to get along. And you see a lot of people who, who can't get along with people. They don't last long in the sport just because you might be a great rider, but we don't like you and we don't want to be around you. And I don't want to sacrifice myself because I don't, you know, you wouldn't do the same for me. So I'm not going to do the same for you. So there's a lot of that. Um, but I would say the, those kind of people usually never make it all the way to the top. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of sacrifice. But the biggest thing I could say is just it's a, it's, it's a humbling sport. It seems like there's some smack talking going on between teams, that sort of thing. Does that go on? Or are you guys just talking about whatever? Oh, there, there's tension. There's no, there's, there's no doubt about that. There's some, but, you know, 10, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there, there was a lot more downtime in the race where you, you could have a chat and catch up. Now in the Tour de France, for example, it's, it's more or less full-blown racing from start to finish. Even the neutral, it's crazy already. So there's not really much of that. They're the last day going to the Champs-Élysées is like, oh, you're here in this race, you're like, you, or I haven't seen you in three weeks. I've been in the same race, but you know, the smack talk is more like, you know, questioning why you're doing something. You know, why are you chasing this breakdown, or you know, you only got these guys in the break, or why aren't you chasing this breakdown? Um, those kind of things. Like, it's more tactical. Um, I mean, well, okay, once in a blue moon, maybe somebody does a, a risky move and maybe crash somebody, then it really is going to get heightened. But for the most part, there's not much talking anymore. It's, it's just straight up straight up biking you know the inside everybody dashing for gaps on the line but on the far right of the picture it is going to be on the line Marcel Kittel gets the victory and in and even if you like scream at each other which you know it does happen every once in a while because it is tension there is you can't hear anything there's helicopters there's guys with air horns people throwing all sorts of random stuff on you um it, it gets hot every once in a while that's actually a great question because, you know, we love the views we see of like the Tour de France or now a lot of the main Grand Tours are seem to be on TV because NBC and all that sort of thing, which as a cyclist, I love. With the helicopters and stuff around, it's got to be super noisy. So that's my first question. Like, is it really, really loud? And secondly, like when you're going up like the El Duez or, or some of those really tight where it's only as wide as your bike, is that stressful when people are like touching on the back and like screaming at you? It's only stressful depending on where you are in the race. So if, if you're at the front um, and you're going for the for the win or going from the you have to work for somebody, then that could be stressful because you're you're hyper aware of you know this guy crashes me, my race is over, or if somebody attacks now, I can't follow him because I can't go around any guys. It's only a little passageway. Um, it is really loud. I think your like central nervous system sometimes is more stressed than physically sometimes, where you almost get shell shock. Someone drops a a plate and you jump because um, it's it just just really loud at all times. You got your radio, and sometimes you can't hear your radio, um, or someone yelling at you from the side. So that is something that people don't realize how how just how loud it is. But apart from actual like stress of yeah, like yeah, going back to like yelling at each other, that really doesn't happen as much as you think. You know I mean, I, I w wish I could say that just make it a little more you know drama, but it's it's not. There's really isn't just there isn't time for it. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good to yeah, yeah. No, that's good to know because you know when you're even with your other competitive teams that you're racing against, you're still going to be with them for three, four weeks, right? So um, it does seem like a lot of times the guys are talking, and I just always wonder they just like, hey, were you going to dinner night or whatever? Yeah, I, I will say that you will have guys that you think that you hate 
you know, in your mind. And then one day you'll be teammates with them. And you're like, why did I, you know, and you absolutely love them. Or you'll have the guys, you, you love to be teammates with them, but you hate racing against them because they're the best teammates ever. But they're, it's like Shaw and the Blackhawks is a great example of that. I would hate to play against Shaw, but I would love to, him to be my teammate because he's, I'm, I'm his biggest fan. I love that guy, but I would hate to play against him. Just always chirping at you. What are you cutters doing here? Did you get lost? No. Well, then why don't you get lost now? Winning the team time trial in 2011 was huge. Winning the winning the overall team for in the Tour de France that same year was was really big. And not just because we won it, but because of the, the struggle to get there and with the team that we had and, and the way we did it. And um, it was just like almost like a, it was very personal, you know? Because you had put so much into it yourself, it wasn't it wasn't that you're just a, a hired killer. It was it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from all the guys, the original guys who were a part of that. So that, that was really neat. People ask which tour stage is most important. The answer is simple. The first stage starts in Chicago in my barn, and then ends in France nine months later. Um, same thing goes with uh, uh, winning the team time trial in the Giro in 2008. Come on, Christian, dig. Come on, Christian. Come on, come on, come on. This is it. This is it, Christian. Come on, come on, dig deep, buddy. Good job, Christian. Catch Michael Berry. Catch him. Catch Michael Berry. There you go. Come on, get her up to speed. Get her up to speed. Nice big recovery after this. Come on, Christian. Come on, up to speed. Up, 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 up. Christian, you have to fight all the way to the line to get this from Michael Rogers. Come on, Christian, 500 more meters. Come on, Christian, come on, fight this. Come on, Christian, come on. Christian, come on, everything you got, everything, 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 everything. That was, it was really cool because, you know, then we weren't even in the Tour de France yet. We were still a wildcard team. We are still just a complete unknown factor, and we are doing all these insane things like ice fests and warming up, you know, different, you know, experimenting with different things and people laugh at us, you know, and now everyone's got an ice vest on, and, you know, and next year we wore skin suits and everyone laughed at us and now everyone wears skin suits, you know, and we had, so you just, just, we were definitely thinking outside the box and I think, uh, I think more proud of some of the things that we brought in or made people aware that it was possible, you know, bringing in no needles policy, for example. You know, th when I thought her, that I was like, "You guys are crazy. We're we're all gonna die." You know, then we do do it. We're like, "Oh, we're we're fine. And this is great, and it's great for clean sport." And on and on and on. There's a lot of small victories, and but you know, looking back, you I, you don't never think of your victories. So if you you rest on them, then you never go anywhere. So you always have to think like, "Okay, if I win this, I, I want to win it again, or I need to win bigger races, or I need to win more often." So. My victories definitely did not come too often, and I've really only won one big road race uh, by myself in Paris Nice in 2009, and and I got all the victory salutes in. And, you know, I've kissed the ring, I rocked the baby, I put the hands on the. <laughs> I got, I made it, I made it count. We will begin with third place today. This was an amazing run and an amazing tour for this young man, ladies and gentlemen. Live from BMC Racing, third place today. Welcome to future, DJ Can you like explain what it's like when you walk on the podium? 
and you know they give you the stuff and you wave to the crowd like how did you feel that never i never really got too crazy about that i really didn't care about that it was more the whole satisfaction of doing it until getting there you know that was that was great and all to, to be up there and to receive those accolades but it wasn't really it wasn't about that. it was really about just racing as hard as i could every time and and for the i got just as much satisfaction seeing my team win i probably got more when you when you win the team time trial and you have all the boys up on the podium those are the best celebrations you know and, and especially even when we won the team overalls every time like in california we always had uh, champagne and like eight you know big magnets with champagne flying it's just freaking hysterical you know that, that, that that's that's a good time you know um something you know like for example like the champs is is weird you get out there and you know it's beautiful on tv and you see the arc de triomphe and the the champs behind you there's no one in front of you but photographers there's no fans it's it is so it, it's very i mean it's amazing it's like you that's the pinnacle of the sport um but for what the guys who are on there are seeing is a bunch of lenses at them and not necessarily a throng of crowds whereas the states even in small races you could have you know a thousand people immediately right in front of you you want to crowd surf or something but there it's you know the biggest thing and then it's there's no champagne there's no all these other things you know because not a sponsor and so you retired in what year 2013. Uh, 2013 and um now we get to see your mug on nbc how's that going how's that feel it's been fun i mean it's a uh, completely different experience i mean it's totally foreign there's been no schooling for it so it's that's it's been very intimidating going there and just my first event was tour of california and i was almost sick like every day just because i was so nervous and didn't know what i was doing and they're saying all this jargon that didn't made absolutely zero sense to me um we're going to gold and going to blue and we got voice on this and we got we got pictures here and they're coming in and like this is all coming through my ear while i'm trying to and and to compound things like the audiovisual was all messed up in that race, so I would be hearing Paul when I'm supposed to be talking to Phil in my cans, and and then the pictures weren't coming in good, and people were screaming in the, in the truck, and it was horrible. And I thought like I never want to do this ever again. And then fast forward to the Tour de France, and I was I've done you know 22 Grand Tours in my life, so I feel more at home in that day-to-day -day grind, and I don't know, it just felt a little bit more natural. It's really cool to see where Christian's career has led him, first as a cyclist, and now he's a commentator covering races like the Tour de France. Yeah, and so here he is, you know, on TV with some other legendary cyclists like Bob Roll, uh, an American former professional cyclist who'd ridden in all of the great races. And, you know, after a few weeks of being at the Tour, you get bored, and uh, things like this happen. It looked like you and Bob were were riding one of the segments but was he really in street clothes and you were in cycling gear what, what was that story that happened man we, we we begged for some bikes we got some bikes from our friends at road id and they they gave us their bikes and uh we rode up latusir back to our hotel how far was that latusir was it was about a 11 mile 12 mile climb it was hard, yeah, seven, eight, nine percent, you know, six, you know, but it was, it was a climb. I mean, it's, it's a true alpine pass, you know, and I was like, sweet, I got my carry-on, I got all my stuff. I'm like, Bob, we got a bike if you want to do. He's like, I'm in. And I was like, you got anything? No, I don't care. I mean, didn't didn't even like raise a seat. He was on this small bike that didn't come close to fitting him. You know, I had everything. Bob had Louis Vuitton shoes on, <laughs> no socks, and black skinny jeans. 
and then halfway up he took his shirt off you know and i mean I, it was hot it was close to 90 degrees that day but yeah he's a complete animal and we just laughed our asses off we were like just we were like rave lunatics leaving the parking lot because we had we hadn't ridden we hadn't done anything in weeks you know and then to finally get out sweat do what we love we've been watching commentating on this crazy sport for the last couple of weeks and so to finally do that and to get the endorphins going and, and do something i mean just just you know the best drugs are free man he can still crush it it looks like so there's there's some swedish guys i believe that were right ahead of us and he saw them and he had to like chase them down you know like and like where he and this is all within the first mile of the climb you know and he's going way over his limit and of course you know just just to show them you know and guys look over they see some crazed lunatic and it's jeans and, the, and, and they're keeping up with them like who is this you know it was Really was a uh, that was the highlight of the tour. I think I would say for Bob too. But it was it was just great to do. And then of course we rolled in, and we went right by the uh, the restaurant where all the whole staff was eating. You know, and yeah, so it was a good time. <laughs> so I just want to finish by saying thank you. We met through uh, a mutual friend, and you were became our unofficial coach, which of course I deemed you without your permission. So thank you for that. Uh, for Wheels for Water. And so we just finished our second year and you were always crazy supportive of us. And so I want to say thank you to that. And also let you know, it's uncanny, but uh, the first year you called us on our hardest day and we're all struggling. We just done a climb. I don't think you knew this. You called us, we're, at the, we're, we're literally stopped on a mountain because it was lightning out and it was pouring down rain. And that's when you had given us some encouragement. It was like perfect timing. So you're clairvoyant there. And then the second year, we were just about to do one of our hardest days and you called us again. So thank you for that. But why did you, why did you support us? You think that's by chance that I call you on those days? <laughs> no, I mean, a- anyone who, who, uh, what did we, where did we meet that? Was that the, just like a random, the, at the tap house right over here, right? And then it's when we, easy. I just had to buy you a beer. yeah, we, and then, and then it came back and had a fire and had, cause I still had leftover. I mean, it was just yeah, random. Yeah, we had leftover kegs. I mean, if you guys could come over on a Monday night and have some beers at a campfire. Well, the funny thing is I was training because I was trying to lose a ton of weight, and I hadn't drank for like seven months, and I was on a no-alcohol diet. And you're like, well, I got a keg. And I'm like, all right, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't know this, but I only drank like half of my cup, and I was already buzzed. And I was like dumping it out. Yeah, I think we had three, actually. But uh, yeah, I was definitely on the other side of the spectrum at that point. but no, I mean, really just great guys. And, and, and Todd who introduced us is, I mean, I, I couldn't be any, but just seeing like how much weight you had lost, um, the charity you're doing it for, and just good guys. I mean, if anything's bike related, you want positive people, it's good to be around. Christian, thank you. Um, hopefully I'll ride with you someday if I, if I come out east to your, to your new uh, adventure. Southeast. Southeast. Sorry. Oh, sorry. My, my, my bad. And, um, not to sound inappropriate, but it still looks like your wife could kick the crap out of me in a bike race. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> well, Christian, thank you. I really appreciate your time and um, best of luck. And I'll keep uh, heckling you on social media. I guys. Thanks. Wills, episode three. Now all I want to do is go ride my bike. Yeah, thanks a lot, Christian. This was super fun. This episode of Design Up was sponsored by Wheels for Water. Justin, what is Wheels for Water? Wheels for Water is an organization that empowers people to fight the global water crisis simply by hopping on your bike. Go to wheelsforwater.org to find out more. 
We'd like to thank Rule 29 for giving us the resources and space to create this show. As well as our main man, Steve Wick, for his work as our audio engineer. You know, Wills, he's like when you ride your bike with a tailwind. We'd also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing us the soundtrack for these shows. Be sure to visit our website, www.designofpodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Did you get lost? No. Well, then why don't you get lost now? <laughs>